This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Sharice Davids, Democratic candidate for Congress in Kansas's third congressional district. Full disclosure to our listeners, I serve as National Communications Director for Run With Pride, an organization dedicated to electing LGBTQ Democrats to Congress. Sharice has been endorsed by Run With Pride, but don't think I won't be just as tough on her as I hopefully am on everyone else. Uh, Sharice, fortunately, will be starting out with an easy one. Could you tell us about your background and why you decided to jump into this race? Yeah. So, you know, I would say the um, there are a couple of different reasons that I wanted to get into this race um, and run for office. And, you know, kind of big picture wise, I just think we need to have more women and LGBT folks and people of color um, running for office. And, you know, when I looked at the race that I got into, there was not in not any diversity, really, it was it was four or five men that were in the race, all of which were white. And I just felt like, you know, we needed I, I should put my money where my mouth is. And I've been saying it for years, we need more folks who are from a, a diverse lived experience to run for office. And I certainly have the skills and qualifications to to be a good representative. And I felt like I was looking around and wondering if somebody was going to get into this race that that brought a different lived experience. And then, you know, I when I didn't see that, I I felt like, well, I, I felt compelled to do it myself. That's kind of both big picture in this specific race. You know, I'm in the Kansas 3rd Congressional District, and we have uh, here one of the most vulnerable incumbents. I'm in a district that uh, Hillary Clinton won, but we ended up um, reelecting a, a Republican who is, um, you know, aligned himself with uh, the current administration on almost every single issue. And um, I wasn't okay with that. And a lot of people in this district are not okay with that. And so I wanted to be I wanted to be part of the change that that we need in this country and progress. So I decided to throw my name into the hat and see what we could uh, see what we could do. And things have been going really great so far. We've got a ton of momentum out here and lots of folks who are excited about about this campaign and and about the change that we can see in Kansas. That's really great to hear. Now, that diverse lived experience, that's so important, but it's something that I think a lot of white-run media outlets don't understand. We've seen that very clearly in the face of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory in New York 14th. We've seen this misunderstanding that she was just saying, I'm a Latina, vote for me, when the case was that I have this diverse lived experience, I understand the concerns of the district, and I can represent the people through my lived understanding and shared concerns. Could you tell us about how that's playing out in your race? Yeah, so one of the things that I've seen a lot of is, you know, it's really important as a as a person who's 
trying to be a representative for a district, um, you know, when running for elected office is that you have something that you can connect with as many people with as many people as you can. And for me, I, I definitely think that folks are encouraged um, at seeing a younger woman, yeah, and I say younger for politics, I'm 38. So, you know, a, a, a woman running for office who does have a different lived experience um, in terms of demographics from most of Congress. But, you know, the, the thing that I feel like I connect with most um, with folks in this district is I'm a first generation college student. I was raised by a single mom and I went from community college to getting into Cornell for law school and and, and I worked the whole time I was in um, while I was getting my associate's degree and then when I was getting my bachelor's degree and that whole process took eight years, you know, and I think that there are a lot of people who in this district um, identify with some piece of the message that I'm bringing, which is that too many of us have felt silenced. Too many of us have felt pushed aside by this system. Too many of us feel like we are working really, really hard. And it doesn't matter what you do or if you follow the rules that that you still end up struggling. And, you know, that's something that I think cuts across a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people's experience. And, you know, it could be that some people connect with my campaign because I'm a woman or because I'm part of the, I'm, I'm openly part of the LGBT community. Like I, I never shy away from making sure that folks know that I am a, a native queer woman who, you know, that that is stuff that is important and, and I never shy away from it. But I also make sure that I'm connecting with folks on some of the other lived experiences that, that I share with them that are not necessarily, I just said not necessarily, but they are not in Congress right now. And we need to have more more of that in Congress. So how does that translate into your policy platform? What are you proposing to make better the lives of your diverse constituents? So, you know, one of the things that I really, and this stems from some of the work that I've done professionally um, leading up to this. You know, I, I did, I spent some time doing community and economic development work um, in Native communities. I, and then I spent time in D.C. as a White House fellow working on uh, policy in, in the Secretary of Transportation's office. Um, and that centered a lot on uh, community engagement and community education and non-discrimination. And one of the things that that I hope to be able to do is bring a different point of view and a different voice to the table when addressing any area of policy or legislation. But one of the things that I that I'm hoping to to be able to do is I have a top kind of my top five and this is based on the things that I care about and then also what what I consistently hear over and over in the district, which is that, you know, we need to see more equity in our education. Um, you know, right now we've got an executive side that is literally trying to break down our public education system. Um, and then here in Kansas, we feel that very, we feel the public education, the fight to keep public education very acutely because of the Brownback tax experiments that have done a lot of damage to our schools. And so that's something that, that I'm, I'm pretty concerned about. And then, you know, when you think about healthcare, there's a lot of, there's, it's not just about who has health insurance, it's also access and quality. And, and I think that, you know, if, if we don't start looking at the structures that make that system inequitable, there are too many people who have access to health insurance that are still suffering because of the high 
you know, high cost of deductibles and co-pays and premiums and, and you know, and, and I think there's, there's a lot of inequity that's been built into that structure. There's a lot of inequity that's been built into our immigration system, you know, and, and I think that this is the kind of stuff that if we had people who were concerned about equity while we're making policy changes, then I think that we would see a lot of benefit for broader sections of cross sections of our of our society. I want to dig into some specific policies with you. But first, I noticed you're using the word equity. And I really appreciate that. Because there is a distinction between equity and equality. Could you dig into that? Yeah. So when I think about when I think about the things that cause folks to not have access um, or not. And when I say access, I mean a broad range of things. I mean healthcare. I mean education. I mean jobs. I mean, um, you know, things like how do you get from like school to work and have childcare? Like these are the kinds of things that I think when when folks talk about equality, usually I think that, um, you know, they think about having almost like a blanket across the board, you know, everybody can get the same thing. And because of the history of this country, and because of the, the way that most of our most of the institutions of, in our country have been built up, we have to be really intentional about breaking down obstacles to opportunity. And the reason I say equity is because we ne- we have to have equity or we'll never have equality. People will never be treated equal unless unless they're operating in equitable systems. And and that to me is the piece that we're that we're consistently missing. So the thing I see consistently missing is that the decision makers in Congress, and when I say decision makers, I say that intentionally rather than leaders, is that we have a lot of people who are not listening to what people need. And decision makers do that. Leaders listen and decision makers often think that they already have the answer. And what we need is people who are willing to listen to this diverse set of experiences that we all have across this society in order to create legislation and policy that's going to be equitable for everyone. And it's going to break down some of the opportunity barriers that we've seen for too long. And it has to be intentional. Because if it's not intentional, we're never going to get past some of the intentional barriers that were built in to this society. So one of those key pieces of legislation that kind of fits what you're talking about is the Equality Act, which addresses LGBTQ rights. Could you tell us about this act as well as what the state of LGBTQ rights is right now on a federal and a state level? Here in Kansas, we've got, we just actually had a piece of legislation that went through um, that was based in a, you know, a religious freedom argument. And it ended up essentially saying that uh, organizations that have a strongly held religious belief that LGBT people will not make good Um, foster parents and adoptive parents can, you know, that that organizations can restrict um, an LGBT family um, from being able to foster or adopt children. And that just passed here in Kansas not too long ago. You know, it's interesting because I think that some people uh, wonder what that means for me as a person who's trying to become an elected official in the state. You know, one of the things here that I've seen is that a lot of people are not okay with that. We're going to see a lot of, at least a few people lose their seats in this coming election cycle because of that. And, um, you know, so on the state level, we're we're kind of in the middle of this big conversation about 
LGBT rights and um, equal rights for, you know, under the law for LGBT folks. And, you know, I think that when I think about how far we have to go still and the fact that they're, you know, LGBT people are not part of a protected class at this point. And, um, you know, I think that, that certainly the Equality Act would lead lead to across the board state states wouldn't be able to discriminate as easily against a protected class. You know, I think we're in a place where we need to make sure that we're that we're doing that, because, you know, if anything, we see that there have been more and more um, anti LGBT legislation proposals. And, you know, the Supreme Court literally just said that a person can can deny service to to LGBT folks. And and I think that if what we're going to have, if we put that into legislation to make sure that that's not not allowed under the law anymore, I'm hoping to be able to be part of that. So that Supreme Court decision, the masterpiece cake shop decision, is really relevant, not only in and of itself, but because it is very likely that for the foreseeable future, we will have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court. Now, there, there's a chance that won't happen, hopefully, but I want to talk about the, the overwhelming likelihood that it will. What can Congress do? What can you, as a member of Congress, do to protect the civil rights and liberties of the American people when the highest court in the nation might not be doing so? Well, so we can write into, you know, ensure that when we when we draft legislation, when we you know put legislation um, forth that it that it protects uh, it protects LGBT folks and that it specifically enumerates that LGBT folks can't be discriminated against. You know this the Civil Rights Act. There are some provisions that enumerate gender and some provisions that don't. Or I don't think it says gender. I think it says sex. But you know I think that I think that we're going to have to be very intentional about being sure to include the LGBT community into non-discrimination and anti-discrimination legislation because, um, you know, clearly the Supreme Court does not view the LGBT um, community as um, needing to be a protected class, even when we're seeing discrimination being written into laws at the state level. So I think that's something that we're, that we really need to be sure to include and it's also that much more of a reason that we need to have some more LGBT folks at the table while decisions are being made. And, you know, one of the things when I say LGBT folks at the table, uh, you know, I, I know that a lot of times people will say, oh, well, there's LGBT folks on the, a person's staff. It does matter having peers in Congress who are part of different communities because that really will affect the level of discourse, the amount of discourse. And it's something that I'm, I'm feeling every single day almost. It feels like that much more necessary why we have to, why we have to do this. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will 
will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So I'd like to dig into some of the policies you mentioned earlier. These are two kind of just rapid fire questions. Uh, Do you support Medicare for all and do you support debt free public college? I mean, I have a bunch of student loan debt. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So on the Medicare for all question, I definitely would vote in favor of um, Medicare for all. One of the things we're going to have to do is uh, make sure that we don't stop in the midterms, Uh, you know, that we are continuing to organize, that we're continuing to build out infrastructure in in all the different states to ensure that when the next election cycle comes up, that we either have a veto-proof majority or that we have a different person sitting in the White House. Because right now, even if we had a piece of legislation that went through, um, if we took back the House and then were able to gain control of the Senate, we still have the the person that is in the White House right now is going to veto that piece of legislation. So I would vote in favor of it. And I think that we need to keep pushing that direction. But I also think that we need to make sure that we're, we don't stop working hard because it's going to take us a little while to get there. We have to do something about the rising cost of, of tuition in, in each state. You know, I know there are a lot of state schools. I think it's, I'm more of a, of a uh, address the student loan issue at this point, like I'm running in a district that is purple, you know, we're, we're a state that I think a lot of us would love to see tuition free community college, us encouraging people who want to go to trade schools, encouraging people who want to go to community college to start off with if or if that is the the full direction that they want to go to see success in their life there's a lot of support for that in this area i think that there are a lot of ways for us to address the high cost of tuition and also the crippling student loan debt that we're seeing you know most of my student loan debt didn't come from my public education like i said earlier i i made my way to cornell for law school which is a well it's interesting cornell is a public private school but you know the the law school was very expensive and you know, I, I made that choice because I felt like it was um, an opportunity to, to go to a school that I don't know that I ever imagined that I would get into. Our tax dollars help fund public education, including public universities, and the fact that they keep raising tuition rates, you know, in the way that the different trustees and, and boards are is just, um, it's ridiculous. And I think that that means we have to get like our governors that get elected, our state legislators that get elected, like we have to play a role in that and making sure that those folks are people who agree that we cannot be crushing our students with with debt and high tuition costs. Uh, Now let's look at immigration. It's really America's top issue right now. Something that we talk about a lot on the Millennial Politics podcast 
is what it actually means to have comprehensive immigration reform because we talk about America's top issue a lot. And I think a big problem in the Democratic Party, at least the establishment, is that comprehensive immigration reform isn't that comprehensive. They want to pass the DREAM Act. While that's kind of all well and good in theory, it only provides a pathway to citizenship for 30% of the undocumented population. So while they're saying they oppose family separation at the border, the DREAM Act would keep family separation within the borders legal, maintaining the legality of deporting undocumented parents, grandparents, and elders. What does a truly comprehensive immigration platform look like? And how do we make America safe and welcoming for all people a couple of things. One, I, I like to always say at the beginning of any immigration um, question or conversation that we have to disentangle the border security and immigration and asylum and refugee conversations. This is where I think some a lot of times the, the conversation immediately gets off on the wrong foot. You know, too often people are saying, how do we keep our borders safe and address immigration? And I think that that puts us in a place where we've automatically started off thinking about people coming to the United States as as somebody that we need to be protected from. And I think that the sooner the national um, conversation can can disentangle those two things, I think the the easier it will be for us to have conversations that are rooted in recognizing the humanity um, and the dignity and respect that people deserve because they're people. It, it needs to be said over and over because right now, because of this current administration and also because of the rhetoric that led up to this current administration, we have just seen too much dehumanizing. And I use the term us, meaning just the United States on a whole. Like I certainly have been very upset about the rhetoric that I've seen coming out of coming out of a lot of the mainstream media, a lot of, you know, folks who who are uh, part of this administration. Um, and it's part of why I wanted to run because we need people to be standing up and saying what you're doing right now and what you're saying is not okay. It's not okay for you to dehumanize entire groups of of people. It's not okay for you to say um, awful things about people from any specific country or because of any specific religion um, or religious beliefs. And, and I, I think that that is part of what we need to see. And I want to see that from people who currently hold elected office. And I want to see it from people who are seeking to hold elected office. So that's just like, like right off the bat, my kind of broad view of how we should be talking about um, immigration, asylum and refugee and migration issues is just recognizing the dignity and humanity that every single person is entitled to because they're a person. And I totally agree that, you know, one of the things that um, I've been disappointed about is seeing the the conversation around dreamers be solely focused on on only one person in the family. One of the things I hate to hear people say is, you know, when a child came here without, you know, and it wasn't their choice. And it's like, well, you know, you're right now, what you're doing is separating the idea of the children that are here from their parents and, and that it doesn't correlate with what we want, which is for us to be a, a country that that thrives and and I don't just mean economically thrives I mean that we thrive as communities and that can only happen if we're making sure that we're a good place for families 
to be. We can't be willing to, in a lot of ways, wholesale forget about other, other members of the family when talking about dreamers. And I think that happens too much. So comprehensive immigration reform to me has to do with, one, ensuring that um, you know, that folks who want to become citizens when they come to this country um, have that opportunity to do so. And that, too, that folks who come here, um, especially folks who are like seeking asylum, but also people who are coming here and migrating here because of because of various policies of our country and then of the whatever countries are coming from, you know, I think that we we can thrive as a country when we make that process more streamlined when we make that process inclusive, inclusive of the whole family and not just the one person who either contributes to the economy or, um, you know, came here as a child. Um, I think that it also looks like making sure that human rights laws and principles that we have said we are going to be accountable accountable for upholding are actually upheld when we're thinking about a, asylum for folks and people who are refugees from places and migrating from places for for a variety of reasons. I'm really glad you talked about reframing the immigration discussion. And what you said reminds me of what Senator Kirsten Gillibrand recently said regarding abolishing ICE, that we need to separate criminal justice from immigration because they are not one and the same. But to really understand how they've been put hand in hand, we need to look back in history, not just back to how the current detention and deportation machine was formed under Bill Clinton, but all the way back to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Prior to the Chinese Exclusion Act, undocumented status was not criminalized. Moreover, deportation and detention were not constitutional, were not under federal jurisdiction until a 1893 Supreme Court decision. And so our current immigration system is quite literally rooted in policies and ideologies that were kicked off under the Chinese exclusion era. And I really believe that they are being used in the same function now. How do you hope to dismantle this white supremacist immigration system? Well, one is starting the conversation. I mean, even just what you're talking about, which is like, what is the root of the immigration policy that we're that we're seeing playing out now? People don't know the history of our country. As a native person, I've I grew up knowing and thinking about the the complex history of this country and the different ways that this country has excluded people. And I think there are a lot of people right now who are not not familiar with it. For the last few years, I mean, probably the last 10 years or something, I've been telling people it was not that long ago that this country put people in internment camps. So to think that it is something that is outside the realm of possibility, it just is an ignorance of the history of this country. And so I'm happy that right now, a lot of people are, I'm not happy that they're surprised, but I am happy that a lot of people are learning learning more about the history of, you know, immigration policy of our policy toward uh, groups of, of people in this country, because I think that part of how we ended up where we are right now is that a lot of people don't don't fully understand the history of our country. And um, it is often surprising, particularly to people of color, how how little folks know about 
you know, the way that the way that our federal government has uh, intentionally excluded people based on race, based on religion, based on national origin. And there's a reason that we've had to institute non-discrimination laws. It's because it was baked into so much of the system. The way that I, the reason that I think that having a voice like mine in Congress and and working on legislation and so many other of the people who are running this year is because we aren't just now learning about it. We have either grown up living with the effects of a system that has institutionalized oppression and, and institutionalized exclusion. We have also, there are a lot of us who are running who have spent our, a good portion of our careers working on trying to figure out ways to break those, break down those, um, those uh, pieces of the system that have been oppressive or that have been ex- exclusionary. You know, I think that that, it, that in and of itself is exactly what I will bring to Congress is, is thinking about ways that we can, one, get more voices to the table, but two, try to avoid some of the some of the ways that, you know, I think unintentionally um, now and un- more unintentionally, or I'd like to think that now it, it is more unintentional that people are being excluded. But for a long time in this country, there was intentional intentional oppression and attention, intentional exclusion. And we have to be just as intentional about breaking that down because it didn't happen overnight. It was you know, our country has existed for hundreds of years and we have to be super intentional over these, you know, this election cycle, the next election cycle, over the next couple hundred years to ensure that that is broken down and that it doesn't continue to perpetuate, that we're not perpetuating it. I really appreciate your understanding of how this has historical precedent because recently the proposal to abolish ICE has picked up a lot of steam. The response that a lot of Democratic establishment members are given is that this is the fault of Donald Trump. But Donald Trump really is the more of a symptom of the problem. And ICE was created under George W. Bush. It was ramped up under Barack Obama. And ICE is fundamentally rooted in the idea that immigrants are a threat to national security. That's why it exists under the Department of National Security. That was not the case until 2003. Uh, Moreover, it is premised on the idea that it is just and correct for the United States to have an agency that is entirely dedicated to arresting, detaining, and deporting people based on their race and immigration status. Do you support the proposal to defund ICE. Thank you for saying that I recognize the historical context that we're operating in. Most things that uh, deal with Native Americans in this country um, come under the Department of Interior, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It was, I can't remember what year it was, maybe in the 30s, all matters pertaining to Native Americans were dealt with through what used to be the Department of War and is now part of the Department of Defense. When you talk about the historical context of ICE being rooted in treating a group of people as if, you know, there's a threat or it, that they're, quote unquote, the enemy or something to that effect, that's exactly how the federal government um, approached Native Americans until not that not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. I just, I feel like I'm constantly seeing parallels between what is happening right now and what has happened through the course of our federal government's history. You know, I do think that there, I think there is a fundamental issue when we have something related to immigration. And this is why I was saying earlier, we have to disentangle these two 
premises. They're not, they're not part of this. They shouldn't be always considered part of the same conversation. And that's what keeps happening. When the Department of Homeland Security is the one of their functions includes uh, handling immigration issues. I view that as a there's a fundamental problem right there. You know, we have to we have to get away from thinking of everyone who's coming to the United States as being a threat. For all the times that people love to say that this, you know, this country has innovation because of immigration. This country has was built on but was built by immigrants or, you know, we're a country of immigrants. You know, I think that I think that those are the kinds of statements that run so con- I don't necessarily subscribe to all of those, but you know, I, the the it's interesting to me when the folks that I hear saying that are often the same folks who are okay with us having a de- Department of Homeland Security being the primary adjudicator of issues related to immigration, and that to me is a fundamental problem. And we have, and I, and I do think that we need to. I think that there are plenty of ways that don't include ICE. Um, as a, as an enforcement agent, you know, having an enforcement agency related to immigration in the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and I, and I would love to have, um, you know, I, w- I think that we need to have something that is reworked that deals with um, immigration that is, that is not part of essentially, you know, thinking of it in, in terms of policing if that makes sense. Because I think that that, again, starts us in the wrong framework. We're already thinking about um, threats versus us trying to figure out ways to make sure that we're thriving as a country. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, do you do support abolishing ICE? I do. I would, I would support, well, you asked me about defunding, which I think is probably, you know, uh, essentially the same thing, yeah, you know, yeah, but sure. um, yeah. And one of the things that I think that one of the reasons that Kevin Yoder is so problematic is because he's the chairperson of the Homeland Security Committee in the House, and he has done the opposite of what we're talking about here. He has the power to defund to defund these practices and defund ICE, and he instead decided to write a letter saying, I don't think we should separate families. And and this is one of the reasons that I have, you know, we called him out on it in our, uh, publicly not too long ago. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously I don't get to just take a take up the position that he's in but but I do think removing someone who is funding rather than defunding because I think it just shouldn't it's not I don't think that that's the appropriate place for that function mm-hmm. okay that is wonderful to hear now lastly how can folks get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online um, so there's a couple of things the Facebook page which my Facebook at sign is just Sharice for Congress and then Instagram, also at Sharice for Congress on Twitter. I'm uh, just Sharice Davids. And then we have a website, shariceforcongress.com. And then in terms of getting involved, there's a few different things. You know, anybody who is here in the third district, um, we are always looking for folks to volunteer. We're constantly out knocking doors, you know, canvassing, and um, doing phone banking, you know, because this is, we didn't even talk about Citizens United, but because this is the world we live in right now, I'm constantly having to do tons of fundraising. Um, we have a ton of small, do- uh, small dollar contributors. Really, we have to be supporting candidates that are, that are ready to bring change. We have to be, you know, this is, uh, it might sound cheesy, but I feel like 
the work I'm doing, the money that comes into the campaign, these are all investments into our democracy. And if, if we've seen anything in the last couple of years, it's that we have to invest our time and energy and work into, into making sure that our democracy is working for us and not just working for a select few. The government has power because the people allow the government to have power. And the only way for us to, to make sure that we're, we're having our voices heard is to do things like support candidates and become candidates. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know this episode went uh, longer than expected, but it's because I really enjoyed our conversation. I think you have a lot of important insights, and I wish you the best of luck on the campaign trail. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Now, to our listeners... Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, support us through Patreon, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.